Welcome to the first full episode of Beyond the Wall of Sound, a podcast that's about finding useful connections between H.P. Lovecraft's cosmic horror stories and modern fears of new and emergent technologies. Today I'm focusing on The Thing on the Doorstep, a story that H.P. Lovecraft wrote not long after his divorce. It is the only H.P. Lovecraft story to feature a major female character, and the reason that I found this particularly significant is that the object of horror, the process of magical body switching and possession, actually connected, for me, to what makes us afraid or alienates us about visions of the future when it comes to sex and gender. If that seems weird, well, it's because, like a monster with tentacles from space, it is. This story and these technologies gave me the idea for this podcast. I had been recommended Thing on the Doorstep in a slow, many-year dive into everything H.P. Lovecraft, and around the time I was doing research on new sex robot technology for a presentation I was working on for a class, because this sort of technology is interesting to me, in such that it presents a future that we don't really see very often, where the lines of sexual relationships and gender are twisted beyond current regularity and completely redefine how people do or don't interact with each other. I also, around the same time, found an article talking about how people are experimenting using virtual reality, motion tracking, and other feedback mechanisms in order to convince people that they were switching bodies, for the express purpose of creating a unique and empathetic experience that showed people what it might be like to be the opposite sex or gender. A link to this article can be found in the description, as well as all other articles that I draw from. So here we have it. Two different technologies that seem to be oppositely attempting to change the lines of sex, gender, and personal relationships, showing a fear of future technologies because of these changing relationships that directly echoes H.P. Lovecraft's own fears from even back in 1933. A lot of the criticism that comes up for the thing on the doorstep comes from the fact that it has very little to do with the cosmic, inhuman, and existential horror that is normally characteristic of Lovecraft. I chose it today because of that because it is one of the few stories of his that has a horror that is constructed from a fear of changing boundaries between people. A few things to mention before we begin. What we are delving into with the majority of this is Cartesian dualism. It's an old idea that says that our body and mind are somehow separate objects, that our mind lives in the mobile vehicle that is our body. When we talk about body swapping, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the human nervous system and perception is actually very easy to fool. There's two experiments that I try to mention later, and I get them confused and become unable to clearly articulate, so I'll talk about them here. The first is the so-called rubber hand illusion, which is a manifestation of what's known as the body transfer illusion. In this experiment, which is pretty easy to replicate, the test subject, who originally in the first experiment did not know what was going to happen, has a rubber hand placed in a similar position relative to their opposite hand, like their left hand, on a table. Their actual real hand is placed behind a divider. Both hands are stroked, usually with an object like a paintbrush or something like that, until they experience this body transfer illusion, where their brain registers the prosthetic hand as their real physical hand. They end up feeling like they have the same feeling in both the prosthetic hand and their real hand. So for added hilarity though, there's a bunch of videos on YouTube where people try this out only to have the person administering the experience stab or smash the prosthetic hand with a weapon, which produces a response as though the person just had actually had their own hand injured, where no harm has actually come to them at all, except for, well, an inability to trust their friends ever again. 
The second, only tangentially related, is the so-called ghost hand experiment, which begins to display that our ability to register other physical presences is somehow related to the feelings of touch. In this experiment, a robot arm mimics the exact movements of a person stroking a back composed of silica on the person's own back. When the arm is set to a slight delay, the person in the test frequently feels a very jarring sensation of there being a person, presence, spirit, or a ghost behind them. The key here is that it's only this half-second delay that separates us from feeling like we're ourselves or that we aren't alone in an empty room. Both of these experiments change our sense of self through touch and vision, fooling our nervous system, allowing for the concept of VR body switching to not feel very far off. In a 2010 experiment, Slater et al. showed that VR and a first-person perspective create a very strong sense of body swap illusion, building upon previous literature that showed that people's heart rate would actually rise when their possessed body was affected by some sort of physical stimulation and even perceived potential danger to that current possessed body as though it was their real original body. We're also going to talk about sex robots briefly, the opposite side of what I see as this future relationship coin. There's not much here that isn't self-explanatory, besides that there's substantial evidence to suggest that the robot, like a virtual reality body illusion, will be able to successfully convince you that you are engaging with a person. There's a lot more going on here, but we'll talk about it in the podcast. So. We may be able to temporarily convince ourselves that our perception is in an object or in another person's body, or even be convinced that another object is a person. Like Jurassic Park, if we can do that, should we? Will it create lasting empathetic experiences that can give people a better idea of what it's like to be someone else? Here to discuss that with me is Dr. Jessica Ryko, a professor of ASU with the School of Film, Dance, and Theater. So, without further ado, here's talking on Thing on the Doorstep. Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Wall of Sound. Uh, this is our inaugural legit episode. Uh, I'm here with Dr. Jessica Ryko. Uh, interested in... Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, because I can okay. parrot what I've read. But. Yeah, of course. So, um... My background is uh, predominantly in dance practices, or what I'm going to more specifically say is somatically informed dance, and I, I'll break that down, but I come basically from a movement background and use that sort of practice-based knowledge, kinesthetic knowledge, to look at interaction and interface design with different forms of technology. Um, I'm particularly interested in haptic or touch-based devices and interfaces for technology and think about that from multiple perspectives and lenses. Very, very cool. Yeah. So (laughs) today we're going to be talking about the science of, I see it as the future of tech, the relationship between technology, sex, and gender in concert with the thing on the doorstep. A quick summary for those of you who have not read the thing on the doorstep. It's a H.P. Lovecraft short story that features, there's this guy who goes to the Miskatonic University, like everyone does, because they're all set in this mythos, and he has this friend who's spending more and more time with this girlfriend of his, which is shocking because there's a woman in an H.P. Lovecraft story, <laughs> and of course she wants to be a wizard, and uh, but she feels like she can't be a good wizard unless she's a man, but it turns out that she's switching bodies with her eventual husband, 
uh, and having him go perform rituals because I guess you need to have a man's body to be an effective wizard. I'm not sure how that works. <laughs> but but then it's revealed ultimately that it is the originally the father of Asenath Waite, who's the character and who's doing the body switching, has originally switched bodies with her and is now residing in her body but is trying to find a dude's body in order to do creepy rituals that summon tentacled monsters from another dimension because it's an H.P. Lovecraft story. Um, <sighs> so I was really interested in connecting these fears regarding um, all, all of these things that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I was most interested in that sparked my interest originally in this was this article that I read about using VR to switch bodies, mm -hmm. which I thought you would have yeah. some interesting things to contribute about that. Well, I think the first thing I want to point out in your synopsis to know is that, like, even though the story has a woman in it, she's not even present, right? It's just her body. Yeah. Because the entire story, if you think about the the way in which the story is separating out this idea of consciousness or a conscious human from a body, which is a whole subject we can talk about in terms right. of Cartesian dualism and how that plays into the story, she's not even present as a, like, her body's there, but as a, like, this sort of, like, conduit shell, which I think is interesting to think about. Yeah. Right? Um, so this, I guess, in some ways you're talking about VR and switching bodies. Um, before we even get into that, I think we have to think about, like, what are we talking about in terms of bodies? This term body gets turned around and put around so much. Mm -hmm. Like, what is a body? What is a body in relationship to us? And what happens in many, in these cases, like we see in the story and we see a lot in our design practices, um, around technology, which, you know, and oftentimes gets sort of co-located with, with futurist discussion. Um, this idea of body being this thing, right? It's like this sort of shell, gets treated as a shell, it gets treated as this thing that we live in, but isn't really us. Yeah, it's like we're sort of just a meat, a, a chunk of sentient meat that's driving around a meat machine like yes. a car, which yes. is not really, not really how true. it works. And even if you're looking at sort of, uh, you know, even neuroscience has looked at this um, as something that isn't true, but yet these images persist, right? Because they're so deeply ingrained in popular culture, in the way that our world has been designed, um, that we, it's really, really hard to escape that mentality, right? That our body is this sort of meat suit that we wear and sort of puppeteer around and that most of who we are and who we identify as is this sort of like consciousness or this cognitive entity that lives in a body, mm -hmm. which isn't true. Um, and in fact, it's it becomes very, very difficult to imagine outside of that. Um, and this is where I would say, as a dancer, as a movement practitioner, um, and as a somatic practitioner, it's... It becomes a sort of ongoing debate and ongoing fight to sort of reclaim bodies as part of our consciousness or a part of who we are. And that's really, really hard to do. And I think in part because so much of how we engage in the world as everyday humans, and I'm putting this in quotes, um, speaking from somebody who lives in the United States, who works in an academic institution, um, who sort of lives in a world uh, surrounded by, you know, consumer technologies and everyday technologies that have a certain way of asking us to engage with the world, it's really, really hard to think outside of that um, and to convince people that there might be another way of thinking about themselves. 
So to break that down in terms of, if you talk about somatic practices in particular, um, this comes from the uh, Greek root word soma, which is a way of talking about mind, body, and spirit connected together. Mm-hmm. That we're, if we think about ourselves not as a body or not as a person, but as a soma, where these things, mind, body, and spirit are interconnected, um, we oftentimes think of that as who we are, and we sort of treat the way that we engage with people from this perspective. Yeah. So we can't necessarily separate it out or you can't just mix and match, right? You can't like mix and match uh, a, a, a mind with another body, yeah. Um, because so much of how we understand our our world is informed by our sort of our bodily attunement, mm-hmm. right? We can think of that just simply in the fact that like our anatomy, our physical senses, our sensory system is how we engage in a world, and it defines how we see it. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, you know, if we were to swap. If you and I were to swap bodies, mm-hmm. that there we would probably we would it would it would drive us insane. Yeah, and I and I say that you could say that tongue in cheek, but literally, I it's it's that Frankensteinian idea yeah. of I would not know even how to probably walk. My center of gravity be, would would okay. be off. I, um, of right, like uh, I you know all of the embodied habits that you have about how you even approach walking, mm-hmm. how you would grab a thing would be different than mine. Yeah. So there would be this this fight. And and it's not like those sort of embodied predispositions just get pulled away with my consciousness, yeah. right? That yeah. those things are so intertwined, you don't know where one starts and the other one stops. Yeah, I mean, you have a, you have a certain level of kinesthetic perception. It's right. like when, I mean, mine is terrible, but when I have my hand over here, I know that I'm moving my fingers right. even though I can't see them. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, is your body, as you perceive it, is really not such a concrete and, like, the boundaries of my body are kind of a, a fluid boundary. Yeah. Because, like, if I have my phone, for example, I can tap my phone on my knee and mm-hmm. I can feel things through my phone. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a phone, it's my phone, it's in my hand. Yes. And to not least to mention the fact that the, your phone is an information technology, is yeah. kind of a part of your, your, your mind, uh-huh. just in a very limited sort of way. The data rate between your phone and your central nervous system yeah. is ridiculously slow. Yes, and I think it's like even you're talking about this idea of holding your phone and tapping your knee. It's like, well, are you conscious? You're probably conscious of it tapping your knee, but it's still your hand holding your phone, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's this the way in which um, consciousness plays into the forefront of what we're experiencing, oh, yeah. right? So let me say it this way: we have we choose what we're consciously aware of. And we choose that to a degree, but the way in which we've habituated consciousness also chooses that for us. Oh, yeah, for sure. So this gets into um, uh, an area of study that relates to my work, which is called ocular centrism, Mm -hmm. which is a very, very fancy term for explaining that a lot of how we engage in the world is predispositioned by our vision. So if you think about the design of our technologies... Right. Vision as a sensory system tends to dominate what we engage with. We have mm-hmm. screens, film, the idea of data visualization is like pretty much the only way that we could ever imagine experiencing mm-hmm. is particularly numeric data or digital digital content. 
And so we have this sort of predisposition in our design Western world, and I want to be specific about the sociocultural context in which we're engaging, particularly if we come from a sort of like age of enlightenment empirical way of thinking about the mm -hmm. world, which is how a lot of our interfaces have been designed. Um, it tends to be vision forward to the point where we're, we're kind of practicing vision all yeah. the time as our conscious dominant sense. And that really affects the way that we engage in a world as a whole. Mm -hmm. And it, and it impacts the way that we imagine validity as well, or truth, mm -hmm. or this idea of, of truthiness. So, you know, coming back to this idea of VR, if we're kind of weaving that back in, mm -hmm. uh, we can think about this idea of body swapping as being something that's been a dominant theme. <laughs> you, can, you can look at, like, Freaky Friday as a movie, oh, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and then you're talking about H.P. Lovecraft's story. It's become such a common theme that we think of it as being something that would just happen, that we, mm -hmm. we could do. And what happens when something becomes commonplace is that we start designing for those things. So mm -hmm. now we have situations where people are designing VR ex experiences um, in order to give people the experience of somebody else, right? So mm -hmm. it's literally what you're talking about, H.P. Lovecraft's story, this idea of body swapping to understand the embodied experience of a new person. The problem with this is that, it, again, it comes from an ocular centrist perspective. Right. It assumes that by putting on a VR set, if I'm a woman mm -hmm. and I put on a VR headset and I take in the body of a man, right? So if I look down, I see I'm, I'm made of a man, right? That I therefore am. Right. Or that I am so, I can't, that, that the, the experience of visualizing myself as a man through a headset is so convincing that I will have a deeply profound empathetic experience mm -hmm. to being a man, Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say the stuff that I had read, I, I could be wrong because it's been a, a long time, but it was at least that they were experiencing, they were uh, implementing also a certain level of haptic feedback as well. Uh huh. Uh, so that if when you touch something, it was more like you were actually touching that with the other person, which uh -huh. is, is a lot more. I, I think what they're trying to, what they're, the people who were doing this. Yes. Was, what we're trying to suggest is that it is not terribly difficult for you to convince yourself that you're having that empathetic response, even if it is centered on vision. Uh -huh. Like, I know, uh, for example, one thing that I was thinking of while you are talking about this idea of ocular centrism is, like, when you're relating to someone, mm -hmm. uh, you, when you have a dream, like an extraordinarily mm -hmm. vivid dream, and you're relating mm -hmm. to someone, what happened, it's always visual. Yeah. Uh, you is often. I mean, sometimes I feel like I try to move in my dreams and I can't, mm. and then you're just sitting there looking at things. Mm -hmm. um, well, that maybe where you and I differ because I feel things right? in dreams all the time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I do too. But it's I feel like the the visual medium definitely dominates it, and it's it's definitely something that I think is woven into our technology yeah. already for sure. Uh, you know, with the design of certain you know websites or yeah. there's like things that pop up and go bling and yeah. you know, they ask you to look at them. Right. Well, and I think that's but but we have to talk about that as a practice in consciousness, right? Because. Uh -huh. You may have a practice in consciousness that forefronts vision in your sort of everyday engagement with the, with the world, yeah. right? I am forefronting kinesthetic experience on a regular basis. Okay. So my my sort of engagement with the world is yes, vision is definitely a part of that, and um, but a lot of the practices that I engage with are either very intentionally de-emphasizing vision, or we could say in another okay. way, it's forefronting kinesthetic knowledge as a right. way of, of attuning to a world to the point where because that's so, so much a part of my practice, I would say that's how I engage with the world pretty okay. often. Yeah. So I, I'm very, very conscious 
um, of the way that my body experiences a world. Um, and that's because I have a practice that chooses mm-hmm. to engage mm-hmm. that, right? Which, you but know, the there aren't many... the vast majority pra- is vision. Right. For, for, for the vast majority of people, they're not being asked to consciously engage with the world kinesthetically on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. We, you know, sometimes we find ourselves in those situations, like if we're in a new city, right? And especially if we're in a new city in a new environment that we don't have a sociocultural context for. So, for example, when I went to Greece for the first time when I was in Athens, I had to have that moment because, you know, the, the streets are narrower, the sidewalks are narrower, people are driving up on the sidewalks, it's busier, it's I have to sort of like re-attune to this new environment. Sometimes we're in those spaces where we're suddenly like much more aware of our kinesthetics in terms Mm -hmm. of how it relates to a surrounding, but we don't design our world to ask for that very often. No. And so this this becomes a situation where, yes, like for those of us who are visually oriented, being in a VR system, for example, may we may convince ourselves that we have this empathetic experience, but I would say it's incredibly limited. It's mm-hmm. limited, and, and, and haptics, even augmenting that, is also incredibly limited. So there's a few issues I take with this. Number one is that it assumes that vision actually you know, that vision is actually good for deep empathetic relationship building, and I would say it's not. It, it gives us a surface understanding of a thing, and we might have a moment um, where we feel a thing, but that's because we've trained our eyes to be empathetic. If if we were to engage in a meaningful experience where we were actually like physically engaging and touching mm-hmm. another person and we knew that that touch was mutual and we knew that the thing that was touching us was not mm-hmm. an inanimate object, I see what suddenly you mean. we've increased the stakes of the game, mm-hmm. right? So we can, we can do this on a surface level with vision and we can have like what I call a feel-good moment where we're like, oh, like watching a film, you're like, that, that will impact me to a degree. Mm-hmm. But it's very, very different than having a frank conversation with somebody, yeah. right? Or having somebody, you know, like call, call us out on something that we did that doesn't feel mm-hmm. good. You know, having that face-to-face interaction where somebody is really engaging with our physical surroundings is very, very different. Oh, yeah. Part of that also is that, you know, part of it's because, like, I might have this moment where I, I see myself as a man or you see yourself as a woman if we're talking about gender, but I still know that when I take that that device off, I'm still yeah, who I yeah. am, right? You, you so it's it's your your sus- disbelief might be suspended mm-hmm. for a brief moment, but mm-hmm. you're not going to wonder, you know, has reality, you know, always been this way or something right. like that? It's not going to be that kind of an experience. So I see it really as just like a, it's like another form. Of, I see it personally as another form of very fancy spectatorship, where I get to spectate. From the first position, first person position lens of what's happening, and yes, I can engage, I can move, you know, and I can I can have some agency over the angle of that camera, mm-hmm. but it's still a it's still a camera lens. Mm-hmm. It is not an embodied experience of that person's perspective. Yeah. And adding haptics on top of that could augment that to a degree, but haptics has an outside in approach to touch. Yeah. So it's oftentimes we're using vibrotactile stimulation mm-hmm. or stimulators to mimic real world touch, but that isn't going to uh, like. There's no puppetry of changing the way that my muscles engage in that moment. Right. Right. It's still my embodied agency from my body that I'm familiar with, whatever perspective that we're mm-hmm. trying to engage with. It's still a part of who I am when I engage in that experience. Yeah. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I one thing that I feel like is worth mentioning is mm-hmm. in in this uh, idea, 
in order to do their best to convince them, the, the person who is moving mm-hmm. has sensors on them that tell the other person how they're moving. Mm-hmm. The, uh, mm-hmm. This is always confusing to me. But So the person who is in the VR, mm-hmm. who is in basically the other person's body and seeing them move, mm-hmm. has sensors on them so that when they move, the other person moves that way as well. Um... So, you know, this is, but yes. But it's, it's what I think you're trying, what, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but what it seems like you're trying to say is even if they're moving writ large in like a really similar way to mm-hmm. you, it, they're not going to be using their muscles and all of that in the same way right. that you do on a daily basis. Correct. So, I just want to parse it out. Okay. So, first of all, yes, like if I'm in a VR system... And I move my hand and I see a hand move, right? Like, as a male hand, or I'm a white woman, so maybe it's a black hand, because this has also been another thing of talking about race, uh, race in VR, and trying to replicate the experience of, a, of another um, uh, another racist perspective, which I think is equally complicated. So I could, I could look at my hands and I could move my hands and see the hands of this other um, gender or race move, right? Mm-hmm. Now, that's one thing. That's where I'm using some sort of sensing or emotion tracking to be able to replicate. That's different than haptics. So, haptics or touch based environments are where we're imposing or engaging through touch. So, I, movement, this is vision, this is still sort of like mostly like motion tracking, mm-hmm. which is trying to re, you know, recreate a visual image to replicate my own movements. Haptics would be if I were to like touch an object, go to touch an object that wasn't there and something on a suit I was wearing tried to give force feedback to replicate mm-hmm. that it was physically there, but yeah. even though it's not. So it's imposing a form of touch upon my body to mimic the fact that I might be touching a but thing. But if we had both, I feel like people are could be, at least in terms of suspension of disbelief, pretty fooled. Mm, so I could mimic an external me touching an external object, but it's still my body touching that object. Yeah, I. It's not. It's not putting. <sighs> okay, it's not changing my kinesthetic way of working in the world. Yeah. And I'm talking about, so we have outside in and we have inside out. Mm -hmm. So these are sort of like two ways of looking at it, right? An outside in approach is to say, I'm going to change the world. And because I've changed the world, I therefore change me. Yeah. And the other one would be to say, in order to even get to a different sense of self, we would have to have a completely way from an inside out, a kinesthetic, which is inside out, my, feeling my muscles, feeling my bones, mm-hmm. feeling my own gravity. That would also have to shift. Yeah. What, and there's no type of technology that mm-hmm. is going to do that. <laughs> well, one thing that I think of is uh, this way that um, people, you know, have gotten like the, the concept of having a, a phantom limb mm-hmm. or I, I'm trying to remember the experiment that it is, but they, they're controlling a, a mechanical arm. Mm-hmm. What, what was the? Have you ever heard of the experiment where they feel like something's behind them because of? But I can't remember the specifics of it. I'm trying no, to. No, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, it's some sort of thing where they are practicing with, like, feeling stroking someone else's back, mm. and then through some sort of experimental trick, they convince the person that their own back is being. But we're still talking about cutaneous touch. So we're still talking about outside in. So I think this is where... um, I feel like a lot of times 
when we talk about touch, we think about what's called cutaneous touch or skin-based touch, right? Mm -hmm. So this is my problem with a lot of the ways that we think about modeling technology, and it's, it's also a limitation of technology in and of itself, is that it has to take an outside-in approach. It has to impose upon a body mm -hmm. in okay. order to make something experienced, right? Yeah. We're, we're giving sort of a, a smoke-and-mirrors experience, but we're not really giving people... We're not really changing people. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. What Do you, you see mean. what I'm saying? So it's this is why I say it's it's more it's more of like a fancy spectatorship. Uh, okay. Because it's not going to change that my muscles are my muscles, it's, my bones are my bones, my body's my body, yeah. and, the, and my my habits, my embodied habits are my embodied habits. Yeah, because you do physical people will have physical tics or physical exactly. habits that they don't even notice that they're doing. Right. If you're not conscious of them. Yeah. So those those will continue to stay in the background, and we might feel for a moment like, okay, I've been in a new world, I've experienced a new thing, I experienced it from an outside-in approach, mm -hmm. I've changed my environment, but I haven't changed who I am. Oh, yeah. Right? So, so we can have this sort of, like, this sort of feeling of being in a new body, but we're not in a new body. Yeah. We're in my body. I'm in my body. Yeah. And you're in your body. Mm -hmm. And that, that can do something. But I would say the fact, the very fact that I can exit that world and still be in my body, and my body never changed that whole process, is like, it, it's kind of like a. It may do something, but I don't. I don't think it does as much as we think it does. Yeah. is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean, the the parallel that came to me when you were talking about the difference between screens and a face to face interaction yeah. is uh, I'm putting everything into the context of like relationships. One thing that I think of is like online dating, yeah. like Tinder, where people are choosing whether they want to meet each other mm -hmm. based on entirely something that's essentially a social media profile, yeah. which to me is like kind of insane considering how face-to-face -face social right. people have, like, evolved to be, which makes me think that, like, it's sort of an outside-in interruption where technology's cutting into these interactions. Yeah. And I think of it as um, a little bit, you know, on the... Complementing ocular centrism as a concept or a vision-forward way of designing, uh, complementing that is another thing called somatophobia, which is, like literal fear of bodies, right? And we say fear not like, ooh, scary bodies, but like literal disdain for. Mm -hmm. We have, in, within sort of Enlightenment era design practices and sort of being what we, I would say a lot of us are in is an Enlightenment era influenced body, mm -hmm. right? Embodiment is that we have a very literal disdain for bodies. In part because bodies for us represent all of the things that we don't want to strive for, right? Bodies are messy, Think about it. Like, we make stuff. We make spit and goo. And, and then we're conditioned. We, it's also really beneficial for us not to want that stuff back in our body once it's left. It. Right. So they're messy. They can be stinky. They are incredibly... They thwart a lot of taxonomies, right? Like, they're, it's hard to categorize bodies outside of, like, externalized structures, right? Mm -hmm. like, 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 bodily experience is hard to quantify. Yeah. So it, it becomes sort of the stuff of women, the stuff of marginalized communities, and the stuff of the things that we're trying to get rid of, which kind of, for me, is sort of like, it makes, it makes this conversation around design really complicated because the first thing we have to talk about is, like, why do bodies constantly get left out of the equation even when we, when we think we're talking about them? Mm-hmm. 
You know, like why, like, or what is it, how does it benefit us to continue to try to categorize bodies? Like maybe we need to just step back from that for a moment and talk about this idea of like trying to name bodies or try to put them in a specific container, like how that in and of itself is doing it injustice to our own bodies. Can you, I'm not sure I'm entirely uh, sure what you mean by categorizing bodies. Yeah. So, I mean, we can think of it in a context of like... I'm going to talk about this really specifically from a design perspective. Okay. Um, so when we think about designing for people or designing for bodies, oftentimes in our design practices, we're not able to do anything unless we can categorize it, right? Oh, because okay. in order to put yep. it in, and and these practices of categorization can um, can help us to a degree to make things, but they also make a lot of assumptions about what is and what isn't. Yeah, because if you're designing something, it has to be designed for. Yeah. Oh, it has to be, well, it has to be designed for, but it's also sort of this idea, in order to design, especially with technology, in order to design a thing, we have to understand what it is and we have to put it in a container. Yep. Um, and a lot of embodied experience, a lot of movement, like like our bodies as a sort of kinesthetic thing um, really sort of thwarts that because a lot of what we experience at a kinesthetic level can't be categorized. Yeah. Like, movement is really, really hard to categorize, especially when you take it out of a sociocultural context. Describe, like, all the physical feelings that we have, I think, generally are... For example, you can say, oh, if you're afraid, you have, like, maybe you get, like, chills down your spine. Mm -hmm. But, first of all, that's coupled with the concept of fear Mm -hmm. as an emotion and Mm -hmm. all of that. But it's also... If I say having chills down your spine, that's only basically me using these other feelings to relate to what that is in the same way that you can't exactly describe a smell that no one's ever smelled Mm -hmm. before. And somebody else, when you say chills down a spine, might associate that with pleasure. Yeah. Right? So, so much of the way that we try to shape... It's all bound up together, and this is part of the issue, is like our sense of... Like our sense of um, touch... Number one, our sense of touch is distributed across multiple multiple bodily systems, mm-hmm. right? We have our our skin, which is the largest organ in our body. Yeah. So we have touch across this whole surface. We also have kinesthetics, which is a subsurface understanding of of touch, right? So like I feel my body move, like yep. I feel my muscles, I feel my bones. On top of that, you have various sociocultural contexts for touch, which like what is appropriate touch, what is not appropriate touch, what makes us. Um, feel different types of things. On top of it, we have emotions that are tied into this concept of feeling or touch, right? Mm-hmm. So you just talk about chills down the spine, which is associated with fear. So all of these things muddled together makes it incredibly hard to categorize, and like universally categorize how we understand touch or feeling. Mm-hmm. And I think that in and of itself has made this whole area sort of something that is set to the side. Mm-hmm. We talk about it as the idea of pre-rational knowledge. It's set to the side because it's the stuff of things that we can't quantify or categorize mm-hmm. in a way that we see as universal, mm-hmm. which we could already, of course, complicate in terms of design anyway, because look at who does most of the design work. So I, I'd really like to talk a lot more, but I actually think we're <laughs> starting to run out of time. Okay. So um, at, at the end of this, what I wanted to say is, do you think that as technology, I feel like technology is going to in, sort of, I, I put it as interrupt our social ways of being more Mm -hmm. and more moving forward. And I think that as a result, because it's not taking a lot of these things into consideration that are honestly, like, if I was a designer and I was trying to design these things, I I would have absolutely no idea of where to go. So I feel like that's... that, And because people are going to keep innovating, regardless of whether they're concerned about that, I think that 
when technology starts to sort of in, outside in, like you said, mm -hmm. interrupt the way that we interact on like a physical level, I think it's probably going to have a bad time. I think it's interesting because we're, we're talking about physical mm -hmm. relationship between physical and social relationships. Yeah. What I was thinking earlier while you're speaking is that, you know, it's one thing even too to look someone in the face. Mm -hmm. But it's another thing to be phys in physical contact with them right. while you're having this conversation. Right. And one example of a technology that I feel like is going to be really, really disruptive yeah. when it comes to physical and emotional relationships between people is sex robots. Yeah. Well, it is interesting, right, because there's been a huge there's been a huge development in sex robot technology in terms of making customizable robots. So now for those who aren't familiar, we, there's a company, and I forget the name. You have, may have to look it up and add it in later. Uh, there is a company, though, that has been building customizable sex robots where you can not only make them physically look like whoever you want, but also they have personalities, personality they have names, and... personality settings, right? So we're, they're changing sort of the way that it would approach mm -hmm. a person. And, and the claim of this company is that they're doing it to make to like help people, right? They think of the community that they're working with as being sort of like people who don't know how to have meaningful relationships yep. and are looking for intimacy. Yeah. It's an intimacy, and of course, part of intimacy is sex. But we all, I mean, anybody who thinks about this is going to kind of roll their eyes because, like, no, it's just making a customizable woman. Yeah, there was a um, there was a U.S. brothel, like I want to say, like a two year or two years ago that they. They were, tried really hard, and they got sex robots banned in that like mm -hmm. area or something like that. They were really going for it because they were basically saying that their job, for you know, better or worse, is to provide people with these actual intimate relationships. Yeah. Which I mean, uh, you know, sometimes does involve sex, uh -huh. but it's a big difference when you have. I I would argue I'm going to be anti-robot here yeah. and and say that uh, they're not really they're they're in this sort of in between line yeah. between an object and a person. Yeah. And it's very different from having an actual physical and emotional relationship with a person. Absolutely. And and there have been you know sex therapists or relationship therapists who said these could be useful. They could right. Be. They could be, but only if they're paired with actual therapy with human mm -hmm. beings where you can. You you could role play with a, a sex robot if it yeah. makes someone more comfortable, but that has to be followed up with reflection, with engagement, with practice with real people. Yeah. The problem is, is like if that's not part of if you can just go and if you can just buy go it. buy one, which is what's happening yeah, for like ten thousand dollars for ten thousand dollars. But like if you can buy one, then there's no there's no incentive to go beyond that sex robot, yeah. right? And so how is this just continuing to perpetuate, number one, the objectification of women, mm. right? So we're literally, now we're putting a personality with an object, um, which I think can further complicate for people, like, the sort of difference between this, this entity, this object, and an actual human being. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but it's also creating increased isolation, right? So there's not, there's, again, we're reinforcing this idea that it's okay to be alone. It's, it's okay like not to have social interaction. Yeah. And that this somehow is, is an equal or a valid or a valuable substitute for real people, which again, is sort of like trying to capture as much as we can other than the body. Yeah. Right. So it's like silicone. We're trying to create a personality and put it in the shell. Again, yeah. that idea of the, the separation of body and mind. Yeah. I mean, I... Not only do they kind of look kind of freakish to me. Yes, but they do. So you, you have these different settings. You can set them to be, you know, humorous or, like, tell jokes mm -hmm. or, you know, what other 
settings you want. And the thing is, there's this idea, yeah, it's okay to be, you know, alone. And I, there's this book that I've read called Alone Together by Sherry Mm -hmm, Turkle that mm -hmm. I highly recommend. Mm -hmm. This is about how people, have you read it? I've read bits and pieces. Um, So there is this uh, one bit where they're talking about uh, idea of sex robots, like just at the most basic um, Mm -hmm. level. And what people are finding is that not everyone, but a sizable amount of people are essentially, for the purposes of that interaction, fooled into treating the robot essentially like it is a person that Mm -hmm. they are interacting with. Yeah. And that becomes inherently concerning when you can set that person, Mm -hmm. in in air quotes, the robot, Mm -hmm. to act in any way that you so choose and they, they they won't push back. Right. Exactly. And then what happens when you take that level of... I I feel kind of weird saying this, but what happens when you take that level of behavior into an outside context? Right, right. Where if you've conditioned yourself to assume that you have a certain level of control over an interaction and then it doesn't work out that way, Mm -hmm. um, how does that affect people's ability to be able to function. Well, I mean, and these will probably get cheaper, too. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the technologies is very high level, and there was this other thing I was reading that was a commentary on this book that this guy Dan Levy wrote that Mm -hmm. was basically all about how he saw this future where robots will essentially be able to take care of your physical needs far more effectively than any person Mm -hmm. can, and he described it as a 24-7 tap of sex, which was... To me, kind of, I'd see that as a complete social breakdown Mm. of, like, the way that people are interacting. Because, honestly, that's a pretty major driver for why people interact in the first place. And, I mean, for me, it's like, this is, generally, when I think about technology, and this is where, you know, we can talk doom and gloom. But I think as long as we consider that, like, technology is really a means to an end, right? It's an increasing of potential is the way I see it. It could be, well, yes, we can look at that way. But technology is a means to, technology is a means to an end. And I would say oftentimes if if at the end is not a a thoughtful and considerate engagement in being a better human within a society of humans, Mm -hmm. if that is not going to be the outcome of a type of technology, then we have to question whether or not it's actually serving its purpose. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> no, that's co- completely uh, that's completely it. Yeah, I don't I don't like to get too pessimistic. Yeah, it's easy to do. Um, it's easy to become pessimistic, but I, I and and I I I'm a very skeptical person when it comes to a lot of technology. But I think what we have to remember is that designers are have the responsibility of thinking about this, right? Mm-hmm. And this is something that I think we often forgive. We forgive designers. And we separate them from the sort of sociocultural context in which they put their things. Yeah. Um, they're not responsible, right? Like, we, we imagine designers as not being responsible for the implications of their mm-hmm. designs. And I think this is part of what I would see is really what needs to shift, is yeah. that we need designers who understand the sociocultural context in which they're putting things. Oh, they yeah. understand the embodied context in which they're putting things. And if we're not asking designers to be responsible for these things, then then progress and the progression and the way in which technology is being designed is not going to change. Yeah, I think it's a it's a value shift question yeah. because in a lot of ways, uh, techn- the success of an innovation in at least Western society is largely defined upon how well it does in the market. Yes. Rather than whether it does what the designer intended it to do before somebody else bought it and started mm-hmm. selling it. Exactly. Yeah. So. Um, 
All right. Well, uh, I think that about wraps it up. It's been great talking with you. This Likewise. Is, uh, some issues that I find really interesting. So. Yeah. It was lovely. Thank yeah, you so much for having much. me. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I know I did. It certainly presented a lot of challenging ideas, at least for me, about what social life and technology might be like in the next 50 years. I see this podcast as just as much a product of my influences and the works that I value as it is a product of my own mind or the conversations that I have with those that I interview. After all, I'm here to tell stories about technological fears, and what would I be without my own artistic influences? As always, I can't mention artistic influences without mentioning Voidbreaker, who was nice enough to provide his music to give this show the eerie and dancey atmosphere that I didn't originally know I wanted for it. The song for this episode was Augmentation, off of his self-titled album. He's an artist based right here in Arizona, and I really recommend his music if you like 80s horror movie-inspired synths, as well as dancing and having a good time. His social media is in the description. Making this episode, I saw a lot of kinship with the ideas framed in YouTuber HBomberGuy's video on how Lovecraft's own fear and hatred of other people actually, and paradoxically, made his work a rallying place for the very people that he definitely wouldn't have liked. It's called Outsiders, How to Adapt H.P. Lovecraft in the 21st Century, and in it he mentions one of the most influential films for me at the time that this project began its inception. Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water, which inverts the horror of Lovecraft's Deep One Fishmen from The Shadow Over Innsmouth, turns it into a weird, touching, and fantastic love story between a fishman and a mute janitor. The result is a story that I mention as an influence precisely because these technologies highlight the same human relationships and same worries reflected by the thing on the doorstep or, on a more positive note, The Shape of Water. To quote del Toro in 2017, I speak as an adult, about something that worries me as an adult. I speak about trust, otherness, sex, love, where we're going. When he was talking about where we're going, I doubt del Toro was referring to visions of a technological future like I am, but even still, he hopes to remove lines in the sand, saying in 2018 that we wake up to divisiveness, fear, and pointing at the other as something that you gotta fear. The entire world has never been so closed by social media and has never been so far apart. He wanted his movie to be a healing experience for people, and I hope that art and discussion about these technologies in the coming years can do the same thing. I think we can all take the fears that we might have of technology dividing us and transfer that energy into bringing people together, and loving the metaphorical fish monsters or even just the alien sex or gender that we see in other people and in ourselves. Thank you. Next episode we'll be getting together to talk about Herbert West, Reanimator, and technologies that seek to prolong our lives, make it so we never die, or make death a strange and weird interruption between life and what some might call unlife. See you then.